1: new season out on spotify soon hi listeners due to the unfortunate spread of covid19 Parcast has decided to temporarily halt recording this week although it saddens us to interrupt your listening experience we feel that it is a necessary precaution to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff In lieu of this week's episode of The Dark Side Of, I'm excited to introduce another space-related tale from the fantastic Parcast series, Female Criminals. Lisa Nowak was on a mission, but not the kind of mission you'd expect from a NASA astronaut. Hers was to drive 900 miles from Houston to Orlando with a car full of weapons to confront her ex-lover's new girlfriend, I hope you enjoy these episodes of Female Criminals. It's certainly one of my favorite shows from the ParCast family. You can examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of other female felons by following the ParCast series Female Criminals on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of harassment and death that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. We copy you down, Eagle. Listen. Uh... The 1969 Apollo 11 moon landing was a momentous event in world history. Not only did it represent the zenith of humanity's technological might to date, it was also the triumphant culmination of America's space race against the Soviet Union. At six years old, Lisa Marie Caputo didn't know or care about the supposed political victory. She sat squashed in between her mother and father on the couch, Her legs were still too short to reach the floor, but her eyes, they worked just as well as any adults. Lisa stared, transfixed at the TV screen, and held her breath along with the rest of the world as Neil Armstrong took that first step on July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. These words, the image of the boundless space on the pixelated screen, represented a first step for Lisa as well, an initial seed of wonder planted deep within her heart. At six, Lisa had no idea the length she'd go to chase that wonder. She never could have imagined that one day she would be one of the anointed few chosen to go forth into outer space. The knowledge would have filled her with joy. However, not every aspect of her future would be so awe-inspiring. On the contrary, Lisa would have been horrified had she known the dangerous decisions her future self would one day make. Decisions that would lead that little girl on the couch to a 6x8 cell behind bars. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. This week, we're discussing Lisa Nowak, an astronaut who exhibited brilliance, hard work, and stability for the majority of her life. We'll explore how Lisa's perfectionism, grief, and overwork led to the destabilization of her mental state. Next week, we'll explain what led Lisa to take a 900-mile road trip to assault a romantic rival. Finally, we'll delve into the ruinous aftermath of her fateful drive. Lisa Marie was the first child of Alfredo and Jane Caputo. She was hyper-competitive as a young girl and needed to be first in everything. She grew up with her two younger sisters in a two-story home in Rockville, Maryland, a picturesque city just outside Washington, D.C. After watching the moon landing with her parents on July 20, 1969, six-year-old Lisa developed a passion for outer space. So as a child, she began visiting the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum, As she stared at the pictures on the wall, it couldn't have been lost on Lisa that all the brave people who had left the Earth's orbit were men. This was because in the late 1960s, despite the fact that women had long been able to vote and hold seats in Congress, the possibility of a woman traveling to space was still remote. In fact, in 1961, NASA cancelled the fledgling Women in Space program due to lack of official support. It seemed that NASA believed that a woman's rightful place was firmly within the Earth's orbit. John Glenn, the first American man to ever go into orbit, was one of the most vocal of these critics, stating... The men go off and fight the war and fly the airplanes. The fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. This was the climate in which Lisa visited the Smithsonian Space Museum and stared at the male faces on the wall. Perhaps the homogeneity of those faces was what inspired her to work so hard in school. Perhaps she hoped that if she persevered, she might transcend the sexist circumstances that shackled women firmly to the earth. In a later interview, Lisa admitted that even as a little girl, she studied really hard. A childhood friend confirmed this, stating that Lisa was hyper-focused, not silly. She excelled throughout school, went to church, and then when she returned home, she dreamed about walking on the moon. In other words, in pursuit of her dream, Lisa was a lifelong perfectionist. Before we continue with Lisa's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Elizabeth Lombardo, a clinical psychologist, perfectionists have a conditional self-worth. They think, I'm only a good person if I can achieve these things. Lombardo's assessment suggests that Lisa's perfectionist mindset might have been detrimental to her well being. However, Lisa must have felt justified in her pursuits when, in 1976, the U.S. Naval Academy opened its doors to women for the first time. Since several astronauts were Naval Academy graduates, Lisa might have seen the development as the first toppled barrier between her and her dream. Author Diane Fanning detailed what came next in her book, Out There. Thirteen-year-old Lisa told her mother, Jane, that she was going to be an astronaut. Jane was aware of her daughter's interest in space, but she had no idea it had progressed to the point of Lisa wanting to make it a vocation. She cautioned Lisa, You can't be an astronaut. There aren't any female astronauts. Lisa pushed back telling her mother about the recent development at the U.S. Naval Academy. In addition, NASA was now accepting women into their astronaut program. It was that last development that spurred Lisa to continue her habit of excellence in high school. In 1976, 13-year-old Lisa proved herself exceptional. She aced her math and science classes, focusing heavily on calculus and physics. Courses Lisa must have known she'd need to master for a future career in aeronautics. By her senior year in 1980, 17-year-old Lisa was accepted into the Ivy League school Brown. But when she found out she'd also gained admittance into the U.S. Naval Academy, it wasn't even a question. According to Diane Fanning, in July 1981, 18-year-old Lisa reported to Halsey Fieldhouse in Annapolis, Maryland, to begin her induction into the U.S. Naval Academy. Shortly after arriving, Lisa cut her long hair short, donned the all-white Navy cadet uniform, and joined her peers in a single-file line to the medical clinic. Once there, Lisa was weighed vaccinated, and ferried off to the dining hall. Then, after consuming her first government-issue meal, she reported to Tecumseh Court. There, Lisa, along with her fellow newcomers, would swear an oath to protect the United States Constitution against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. But before the ceremonious oath, the superintendent directed the new students to look to their left then they're right. He solemnly informed them, one of those persons will not be with you four years from now when you graduate and receive commissions in the Navy or the Marine Corps. Like the other students around her, Lisa likely swore to herself that she would not crack under pressure. She would make it to graduation, no matter what. But the Naval Academy's hostile environment would make her promise difficult to keep. All first-years at the Naval Academy were treated like second-class citizens. They were derogatorily referred to as plebes, screamed at and ordered around by the older students. Making the situation more fraught, first-years were required to keep their living spaces spotless at all times. This task was made near impossible, as upperclassmen were allowed to toss a plebe's room at any time. This was the practice of trashing a first year's room by upending wastebaskets, yanking sheets off of beds, and largely throwing their living spaces into disarray. Then, desperate to put everything to rights, the first year would have to race around the room fixing as much as they could before their room inspections. In addition to this indignity, first-years were also often subjected to impromptu tests by their older peers. At any moment, they could be stopped in the halls or dining rooms and forced to answer questions like, what missiles does a DDG carry? Then the first-year would have to answer quickly, correctly, and at the top of their lungs. This hazing behavior was entirely sanctioned by the Navy. They saw it as a necessary evil to separate the weak from the strong. In addition to having to contend with the abuse that all plebes were subjected to, Lisa and her female peers likely also had to deal with hazing that specifically targeted their gender. For example, female first-years were referred to as ploobes. The moniker, a derogatory portmanteau of the word plebe and the word boobs. Unfortunately, this was far from the most offensive name they were called. Sometimes male Naval Academy students referred to their female peers as WUBAs. According to Diane Fanning, the term had a dual meaning. On some occasions, WUBA stood for Women Undergoing Broadening Assets. The Navy required every student to adhere to a 3400 calorie per day diet. For some women, this caused them to gain weight, hence their broadening assets. Even worse, sometimes WUBA stood for Women Used by All. This configuration was wielded against female students to suggest they were hypersexual. According to Fanning, during Lisa's time at the Academy, a frequent joke that was bandied around by her male peers went like this. What do you get if you throw seven WUBAs into the Chesapeake? You get a bay of pigs. This joke communicated two sexist beliefs for the price of one. The first, WUBAs slept around. The second, their promiscuous behavior made them pigs. This sort of casual sexism wasn't only exhibited amongst male students. Lisa was likely also privy to sexist remarks from her professors. In Out There, Diane Fanning explained that more than once, Lisa heard a professor stand in front of a class and say, I don't think women should be here. Though Lisa ignored these remarks and single-mindedly focused on her studies, the constant barrage of sexism possibly had an adverse effect on her psyche. A research study conducted by Joan C. Williams, Catherine W. Phillips, and Erica V. Hall shows that women are especially targeted by sexist biases in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields, or STEM. According to the study, women in STEM fields are forced to walk a tightrope where they're expected to behave more masculine to prove their competence, but then simultaneously denigrated for not being feminine enough. Williams, Phillips, and Hall's research also showed that women in STEM are required to prove their capability over and over again. This relentless sexist competence testing causes a lot of psychological strain. Consequently, a combination of all these factors can sometimes cause women to abandon STEM fields entirely. But Lisa wasn't going anywhere. By sheer force of will, she continued to excel at the Naval Academy. She aced her STEM-heavy, 18-hour-a-week workload and performed admirably in all of the Navy's required athletic exercises. Then, in the summer of 1983, Twenty-year-old Lisa headed down to Pensacola, Florida, to work at the Naval Air Station. And like she'd done when she was six years old, Lisa watched the launch of the Challenger Shuttle on June 18th. At 20, the sight filled her with hope because this time she knew that the shuttle had a woman on board. Astrophysicist Sally Ride was the shuttle's mission specialist. She was also the first American woman to ever go into space. The knowledge likely filled Lisa with certainty. If Sally Ride could do it, then with enough hard work, she too could reach for the moon and land among the stars. Up next, Lisa realizes firsthand that space exploration is fraught with danger. Now, back to the story. In 1984, during her third year at the Naval Academy, 21 year old Lisa met 21 year old Rich Nowak. Like Lisa, Rich was studying aerospace engineering. The two likely bonded over their love for space. Soon, according to Out There, they attended the ring dance together, the Academy's main social event. After the dance, Lisa and Rich became an exclusive item. Outside of her love life, she had another reason for celebration. Every day, female astronauts were making more strides. On October 5, 1984, Lisa watched as the first space mission with more than one woman took flight. One month later, NASA sent the first mother into space, dismantling sexist arguments that such a concept went against the natural order. Shortly after, Lisa graduated from the Naval Academy. According to author Fanning, she sat surrounded by her peers and listened to President Reagan deliver a humorous commencement address. Lisa laughed along with her cohort, Any indignities she might have suffered over the past four years overshadowed by her present-day triumph. She had done it. She'd not only survived, she had excelled. A few weeks before graduation, she'd gained admittance into the Navy's prestigious flight school. This was a huge accomplishment for any graduate, male or female, as candidates had to be extraordinary to even be considered. It also meant that Lisa was one step closer to her dream of becoming an astronaut. In light of that, any hazing she might have experienced at the Academy must have seemed a worthy price to pay. In November of 1985, 22-year-old Lisa reported to flight school at United States Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida. She soon moved into the military base on West Michigan Avenue. Her boyfriend, Rich, was already stationed there, and he wasted no time in helping her feel at home. And she had another reason for excitement. The next launch of the Challenger was scheduled for liftoff. As Diane Fanning described, Lisa had paid close attention to the news of the preparations because the launch would be the second in U.S. history to carry more than one woman. In addition to experienced astronaut Judith Resnick and her five male colleagues, civilian teacher Krista McAuliffe would also travel up in the shuttle as part of NASA's Teachers in Space program. Despite the clear PR machinations behind Krista's presence on the shuttle, Lisa likely would have been encouraged by the inclusion of another woman nevertheless. It's unclear if Lisa watched the Challenger launch live but her desire to become an astronaut herself suggests she probably did. Along with the rest of the world, 22-year-old Lisa likely sat on her couch on January 28, 1986, her eyes fixed on the screen as NASA commentator Hugh Harris counted down. T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10. 9. 8. 7. 6. We have main engine start, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Lift off of the 25th Space Shuttle mission. It was majestic, a modern-day miracle, and it never got old. Not for the Floridians perched up on rooftops, their eyes trained towards the sky, nor for Krista McAuliffe's students gathered in their school auditorium, blowing on party horns as their teacher's shuttle took off. And it must have felt particularly special for Lisa. She was probably surrounded by her boyfriend, Rich, and the rest of her friends down at the base. And as she watched the Challenger ascend, perhaps Lisa imagined her own transcendence. The day that she would also climb into a rocket ship and take flight. And then a puff of gray smoke spurted out from the Challenger's right booster. A flicker sparked and grew into a flame. Then, as the students in the auditorium, the people on rooftops, and Lisa herself watched, the Challenger shuttle exploded. There were seven astronauts inside the Challenger when it blew to pieces. Seven people who, like Lisa, had worked their entire lives in service of this one goal, this singular dream. As Lisa watched the wreckage of that dream fill her screen, maybe it dawned on her for the first time the danger she was risking, the misery she courted in her single-minded bid to, if just momentarily, float weightless among the stars. Two years after the Challenger tragedy, on April 9, 1988, Twenty-five-year-old Lisa married her longtime boyfriend, Rich, in the chapel at the U.S. Naval Academy. Author Diane Fanning wrote that, Though filled with love, the service was shorter than a typical Catholic ceremony, only about 30 minutes in total. After exchanging vows, Rich and Lisa led the party out of the sanctuary. Outside, naval officers formed an archway with their raised ceremonial swords. They blocked Lisa and Rich's passage until, as ceremony dictated, the two turned towards each other and kissed. The officers raised their swords, clearing the path forward, and Lisa and Rich ran through the arch as their family and friends cheered them on. The kiss, the wedding, was a statement of hope. A prayer for the years ahead, and for Lisa, perhaps it acted as a rebirth after the horror of the Challenger explosion. NASA's next shuttle, the Discovery, took off without incident on September 29, 1988. Days later, on October 3, the Discovery landed safely to much jubilation. For NASA, the successful shuttle landing was not only a relief, it saved the space program. Astronaut Rick Hauk, commander of the Discovery, said, It had to work. We couldn't afford to lose another vehicle, much less another crew. I don't think the manned spaceflight program could have withstood another challenger. Lisa felt that her dream of becoming an astronaut had been rescued from the ashes as well. So she jumped at the chance to take on her next naval assignment. For her next role, 25-year-old Lisa was transferred to Oxnard, California. She joined the Navy's Tactical Electronic Warfare Squadron. The job required Lisa to master flying two military aircrafts. She knew that by proficiently manning these planes, she could demonstrate her fitness for the government's astronaut program. So like she'd done so often in her life, she set about distinguishing herself. Her abilities were not lost on her superiors. They soon promoted Lisa to mission commander and electronic warfare lead. Then, as Lisa was proving her mettle in the Navy, a watershed moment in world history occurred. The Berlin Wall fell. Just like that, the USSR was no more. Though this event had worldwide ramifications, it was particularly significant for the American space program. America's participation in the space race had received widespread public support and massive amounts of funding because the U.S. government had always positioned space as yet another frontier where they could prove their dominance over the Soviet Union. Now that the Soviet Union was no more, an awkward question arose. Did the U.S. space program still even have a reason to exist? NASA answered the question with a resounding yes, opting to cooperate with Russian cosmonauts now that they'd been soundly put in their place. It was the genesis of a new frontier in American-Russian diplomacy. As for Lisa, she too was entering a new phase of her life, breaching new ground. In February 1992, Lisa Nowak gave birth to her first child, Alexander. And yet, despite this major life event, Lisa's career didn't slow down in the slightest. Author Diane Fanning wrote that a month after the birth in March, Lisa earned a Master's of Science degree in aeronautical engineering. She followed this by earning an engineering degree in aeronautics and astronautics in September. As she juggled her studies with being a new mom, Lisa also managed to squeeze in applying to the Navy's test pilot school. Competition to gain admittance into the program was fierce, so much so that Lisa, a stellar candidate, was rejected on five separate occasions. But it wasn't in Lisa's nature to take no for an answer. So she applied again, and on the sixth time, she was accepted. In a later interview with Ladies Home Journal, Lisa stated, I basically came to test pilot school with a nine-month-old baby, and it was definitely a challenge to do the flying and take care of a baby, but I learned I could do it. And yet, despite Lisa's measured words, it's possible she downplayed the strain of juggling motherhood and being an active member of the Navy. After all, Lisa wanted to be an astronaut, and the U.S. government had long promoted the image of the infallible Rocket Man. Hyper-focused and capable, this embodiment of the right stuff was always more automaton than human being, let alone anything remotely maternal. It's possible Lisa felt pressure to live up to that ideal even before becoming an astronaut, Especially since studies suggest that balancing work with motherhood isn't merely challenging, as Lisa claimed in the interview, it can be punishing. Psychologists Barbara Reichel and Leo Montada found that, for new mothers, parenthood can occur as a crisis, ushering in ill effects such as depression and dysphoric states. Furthermore, many first-time mothers report conflict and strain, even more so when they're employed. And compared with their husbands, the decline in satisfaction of first-time mothers is faster, the drop larger. This discrepancy in satisfaction rates between new mothers and fathers is likely because studies have found that new mothers often take on the bulk of household and child-rearing duties. This division of labor persists, even if said new mother also works outside of the home. It's unclear what the exact division of labor in Lisa's home was. If her household resembled the average American's, she was likely responsible for the bulk of the child-rearing and house maintenance tasks, in addition to her duties at the Navy. Such a burden could not have been easy to shoulder. Adding to Lisa's stress was the fact that sexism and sexual harassment of women was still a huge problem in the U.S. Navy. Nothing demonstrated this more than the 1992 tailhook scandal. 100 U.S. Navy and Marine Corps aviation officers were alleged to have sexually assaulted and or harassed 83 women at a naval convention. The event summarily proved that the U.S. Naval Corps still had a long way to go to create an equitable and safe environment for its female officers. And yet, despite the formidable stressors Lisa might have faced in both her home and work life, she continued to excel in the Navy's prestigious test pilot program. Then, in early 1996, after a lifetime of hard work, 32-year-old Lisa was accepted into NASA's astronaut program. She would be only the 47th graduate of the United States Naval Academy to ever accomplish the feat. And Lisa was overjoyed. But before she, her husband Rich, and their four-year-old son Alexander could fly to Texas for the advent of the astronaut program, an innocuous event occurred. In a final routine assignment for the Navy, Lisa was paired with a fellow officer named Bill Opheline. The two served on the same squadron for a brief period of time, and then at the conclusion of the assignment, they went their separate ways. It never occurred to Lisa that she would ever see Bill again. She never imagined that he would become the catalyst, the match that would inspire her to set aflame everything she had worked her entire life for. Up next, a tragic event causes Lisa to reconsider her lifelong dream. Now, back to the story. In 1996, after being accepted into NASA's astronaut program, 32-year-old Lisa Nowak, her husband Rich, and their four-year-old son Alexander moved to a comfortable Texan suburb in Clear Lake City. According to author Diane Fanning, Their neighborhood was popular amongst NASA employees, and thus was filled with rocket scientists and astronauts. This was a blessing for Lisa's small family, as the community was tight-knit, people watching one another's kids with little or no advance notice. Shortly after settling in, Lisa's husband, Rich, got a job as a space communications contractor. As for Lisa, she reported to the Johnson Space Center. NASA required all its astronaut trainees to undergo a psychological evaluation. One might expect such a process to be fairly rigorous, but according to Fanning, the evaluation consisted only of a standard battery of psychological tests, a structured two-hour interview with a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and a flexible follow-up session with a psychiatrist alone. Thus, Lisa passed NASA's psychological screening handily. Once that hurdle was cleared, she immediately immersed herself in the relentless task of astronaut candidate basic training. Fanning writes that as an astronaut trainee, Lisa had to go through exhaustive exercises for land and sea survival, scuba diving, and spacesuit training. In the first few months, she also trained for emergencies in high and low atmospheric pressure chambers. In addition, Lisa had to rack up hours of jet flight time to qualify as a shuttle mission specialist. Once she accumulated the requisite hours, she moved on to mastering the complex shuttle mission simulators. Lisa learned what to do throughout a manned flight, including pre-launch, launch, launch, orbit, re-entry, and landing protocols. Alongside this punishing training regimen, Lisa also had to attend classes on astronomy, meteorology, oceanography, geology, physics, and advanced mathematics. Though fulfilling the program's extensive academic and physical requirements had to have been taxing, Lisa once again proved herself up to the task. And in August 1998, after two years in the trainee program, 35-year-old Lisa was promoted to astronaut qualified for flight assignment as a mission specialist. With that, Lisa Nowak was at last qualified to travel into outer space. However, getting assigned to a shuttle mission was another thing entirely. It largely required Lisa to wait. After a lifetime of pushing onwards, always garnering the next qualification, clearing the next hurdle, now being forced to cool her heels until someone deemed her worthy enough to fly, couldn't have been easy for Lisa. This particular form of powerlessness was best expressed by Frank Caldero, an astronaut in Lisa's class. Frank said, one day you can feel on top of the world, the next you can feel lower than dirt. At the end of the day, you can be obsessed with the weight and be miserable. Or you can say, well, this is an opportunity. I'm first in line in front of 350 million other people. Perhaps that's what Lisa told herself as she waited to be called up. That when the time came, she would be first in line. Maybe that's what allowed Lisa to shift her concentration to other matters closer to home. In 2001, after three years of waiting to be assigned to a space mission, 38-year-old Lisa Nowak decided to have another baby. Though she knew it would delay her opportunity to launch, Lisa decided it was worth the sacrifice. So in October 2001, Lisa gave birth to twins, Katrina and Alyssa. Their birth was bittersweet. A month earlier, September 11th had happened. While the tragedy occurred in New York City, a world away from Lisa's picturesque suburb in Texas, she knew her small family would soon have to contend with the ripple effects. And she was right. Less than one year after giving birth to her twins, her husband, Rich, was called up into active duty to aid in the war on terror in Afghanistan. That meant in 2002, for the duration of Rich's assignment, Lisa became a single mother of three, who was also balancing a challenging job as a NASA astronaut. However, on December 12, 2002, NASA announced three separate shuttle missions to launch in 2003 and early 2004. 39-year-old Lisa wasn't chosen for the first mission slated to leave, But she was chosen for the second scheduled launch. And just like that, after years of waiting, Lisa's dream to travel into space was suddenly months away. Lisa's close friend, fellow female astronaut Laurel Clark, was assigned to the first shuttle. Lisa was also friendly with two other astronauts on the first shuttle— fellow Naval Academy graduate Willie McCool and David Brown, a member of her astronaut class in the training program. Lisa might have been a little envious that her friends would all be going into space before she would, but she was largely happy for them, excited as she watched them successfully launch into orbit on January 16, 2003. In space, Laurel conducted an experiment that involved watching a tiny cocoon hatch. After, she called down to mission control and said, Life continues in a lot of places, and life is a magical thing. Perhaps Lisa stood smiling alongside her fellow astronauts as they received Laurel's message, all of them touched by the beauty of the moment, the magic On February 1, 2003, when the Columbia shuttle was set to return to Earth, Lisa sat with her son, Alexander, to watch the re-entry. As they waited for Laurel and the rest of the crew to land, Lisa must have been anticipating her own launch. It would take place just 10 months later, in the very same shuttle that was expected on runway 33 at 9.16 a.m., However, as Lisa and her son waited alongside the families of the astronauts, 9.16 a.m. came and went. And yet there was still no sign of the Columbia. Then, NASA officials began wading through the crowd and somberly leading away the families of Columbia's crew. Lisa must have watched the site with trepidation, certain that something horrible had happened. And it had. During its routine re-entry into the Earth's orbit, the Columbia Shuttle exploded, ending the lives of everyone on board, including Lisa's three friends. In the aftermath of the Columbia explosion, NASA was in crisis. Though the agency immediately brought in psychologists and psychiatrists to help ease the emotional fallout, there were several mental breakdowns. Even more tragic, one member of the NASA family took their own life. This reaction could have been due to survivors' guilt. According to Diana Rabb, an author and psychology PhD, Survivor's guilt is something people experience when they've survived a life-threatening situation that others might not have. Now, while the other astronauts at NASA had not been on the Columbia shuttle, they still might have been struggling with feelings of guilt, because they all knew that they just as easily could have been assigned to the fatal launch. Astronaut Winston Scott expressed a similar sentiment after the crash, stating... As an astronaut, intellectually you know death is possible, but emotionally you don't believe it. The crash was very sobering. I had flown the Columbia Shuttle in the past. It was luck that it occurred on that flight and not on mine. Lisa, too, must have felt as though she'd witnessed something that could have so easily happened to her. A peek into an alternate dimension where she had been on the first shuttle, as she'd initially longed for. In addition, NASA indefinitely cancelled all future launches, meaning Lisa's own upcoming launch was no more. Yet despite these dual tragedies, 39-year-old Lisa shoved down her feelings, She agreed to act as NASA's casualty assistance officer, opting to help Laurel Clark's family move on in the aftermath of Laurel's death. But it's unclear who, if anyone, was helping Lisa cope. According to Diane Fanning, everyone believed Lisa was handling the situation well trained to compartmentalize and set aside her feelings for the good of the mission, they believed she had things well under control. Maybe Lisa herself believed it. Her friends had died. Her lifelong dream had been indefinitely postponed. But maybe Lisa felt she could push through, white-knuckle it, and be just fine when she came out on the other side. Despite how Lisa might have felt, the reality was she wasn't fine. Not in the slightest. Complicating the situation, Lisa's acquaintance, Bill Opheline, had been transferred to Texas. In the wake of her grief, Lisa's relationship with Bill would warp into something ugly, something dangerous. And then, all the pain Lisa had been holding deep inside would explode. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Lisa Nowak's story. We'll follow Lisa as she falls in love with Bill Opheline. We'll also cover how she became determined to safeguard their love at any cost. For more information on Lisa Nowak, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Out There by Diane Fanning extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast originals, like Female Criminals, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Abiyageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.